0: chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And let's do the smart thing and let's pray. Father, it is good to be here this morning. Thankful for the time to be here and... Um, Still a lot of little sickness going around with everybody. Pray your hand of health and healing to be upon them in all ways and all things. Thank you for the time to come together and just fellowship with you. And we just want to praise you for that and just take this time to really you teach and we listen in your name. Amen. Real quick announcement there. Uh, talking to somebody afterwards, I just want to reiterate and make sure it's clear. Veggie Tales is going to be on March 29th. So it is going to be on March 29th there, so I want to make sure everybody knows that as well. All so Acts chapter 8 here. Continuing our study here through the book of Acts. And we're going to spend a few weeks here in Acts chapter 8. We introduced ourselves to Philip last week at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. And this chapter has so much in it. Philip had a ministry in the area of Samaria, and we mentioned this last week. That is a big deal from a jewish perspective of 2000 years ago the jews absolutely hated and loathed the samaritans I cannot stress that to you enough so for philip to go and preach to the samaritans it's a great picture of god's grace and mercy going out everywhere so philip went had this wonderful ministry of preaching to the samaritans and then we were introduced to verses 9 through 13 of simon the sorcerer that got saved And so Simon here continues on, verse 13, it says that he believed, he was baptized, he continued with Philip, and that's where we left off. Now we made the point last week, if we could really just stop at the end of verse 13, how great would that be? Problem is, it kind of keeps going a little bit, and we see the other side of Simon, which we're going to get into today. But before we get into the other side of Simon, we have to have this little brief conversation about the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 14. It says, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. You see the Holy Spirit now going out to the Samaritans. Now, once again, this is a very big deal because at this point so far in the book of Acts, this idea of God moving and the Spirit moving has really only been centralized around the Jews in Jerusalem. So for now the Spirit to be moving now into the areas of Samaria, it really shows the movement of God. Plus, by Peter and John coming down to do that, this is giving validity to what was actually going on. Peter and John's presence basically is now showing an equality. The same Holy Spirit that led the Jews in Jerusalem, the same Jesus that saved them is the same Holy Spirit that will lead the Samaritans and will also lead them into Jesus' relationship with Christ. And in just a couple short chapters, we're going to see the Holy Spirit now come upon the Gentiles. So you see the gospel going out everywhere. But we need to talk about the Holy Spirit here for a second. Now, if you remember way back, I believe it was our first study in the book of Acts, we were just going to do one study on who the Holy Spirit was. And that was our teaching on Acts 1.8. And I said we'd go back and just refer to that. Because the Holy Spirit is mentioned so much. So we're going to do just a quick little study here on the Holy Spirit. If you have further questions about that, boy, grab me after church, text me, email me, call me this week. Or go back and grab that lesson in Acts 1.8. And I encourage you to kind of listen to that. So, a little bit here about the Holy Spirit. We see what's going on in verses 14 through 17, and we see that the Holy Spirit came upon them in verse 16, how it fell upon them. Now, let's just start way back at the beginning. I'm just going to make some references to some verses. We're not going to turn there. If you're a note taker, I encourage you to write these passages down. Maybe go back later today during your devotional time and just read over them. First reference is this, 1 Corinthians six nineteen. First 1 Corinthians six nineteen. The Bible says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. For some reason, we seem to forget that. God has chosen to live inside of you. If you were here this morning and you're born again and saved, the creator of the universe has chosen to take up dwelling in you. That is an amazing thing. That's absolutely amazing. So that means when you are all alone, you can have peace and calmness and safety because God himself has chosen to dwell in you. That also means when you're all alone, and you want to think things and say things and watch things, you shouldn't. God himself has chosen to dwell in you. That also leads to conviction, which is a good thing. So your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. If that's the only point you get out of this today, I'm happy. If you are born again and saved, that God has chosen to live inside of you, that should radically change your life and radically change how you look at things. You are a moving vessel of God in all that you do and all that you say. Your life is not your own. You were bought at a price, the Bible says, and God now chooses to live inside of you. That's an amazing thing. John 14, verse 17. John 14, verse 17. The Holy Spirit is in you and with you. Kind of just reiterates what we said. The Holy Spirit is always with you. And the Holy Spirit, once again, if you're saved, is in you. Now here's the deal. A lot of us like to stop right there. That's comfortable. I can handle that. God's with me. I like that. The Lord lives inside of me. Don't really get it, but I like it. Depending on how you were raised, maybe if you were raised in, in, in a certain denomination, etc., that may be your extent of kind of the teaching on the Holy Spirit. The problem is we're missing a key, key component. And it's that key component that really transforms you from just a run-of-the-mill Christian to versus one who is radically involved in seeing people get saved for Jesus Christ. And that is where the Holy Spirit is upon you. See, the Bible uses those three different prepositions, that the Holy Spirit's with you, the Holy Spirit's in you, and then the third one is the Holy Spirit's upon you. With you, in you, got it, like it, upon you. This is where it gets a little bit differently. In Luke 24, verse 49, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Then in Acts 1.8, Acts 1.8, it says, wait for it, that your, the power will come upon you. And then in Acts 2.4, day of Pentecost, Acts 2.4, it says they were filled with the Spirit. See, that's a whole other level. Whole another level. That is where you reach a point where the Holy Spirit is upon you, and you stop and you say, I no longer want it to be me. I want it to be Him. Not me. No more James. I don't want James deciding or dictating anything anymore. I want to die to myself and truly say, Lord, I'm a vessel of yours, and you use me and guide me in any way that you want. And just you bless me, and you take care of me, and it's all you. Completely Utterly you. And to get this point, God does a visual with this. Can you turn with me to Psalm 133? Psalm 133. Because I think for us to fully understand this idea of being completely covered in the Holy Spirit, the Lord knows that's a difficult thing for us to grasp. Because we sit here and we say, okay, I like this. I like Him being with me. That's good. I like comfort. I like peace. I like Him being in me. Sure, lead me, guide me, direct me. I like that. Now, upon me? I don't know if I really get that. Sounds good. Let's fully try to understand this. Now, in Psalm 133, this is a short little psalm. It's only three verses long. It's called A Song of Ascent. And what this is, is the Jews would kind of sing this quote, this, as they were going up to Jerusalem. So look at the first verse. Verse 1. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. That's a great verse. God desires unity. And the Jews would use this psalm as they were going up to the feasts at the temple where they would be unified together. Do you realize how often the Lord talks about unity in the Bible? Jesus constantly preaches on unity, Paul constantly talks about unity, and so does Peter within the body of Christ. Why do we have to keep talking about unity? Because the enemy wants to, I guess, disunite us, he wants us to be separate. Because if we're separate, all of our energy, instead of used in spreading the gospel, is now used in fighting each other over little things. And you, have, se- I'm sure, have seen churches that have allowed little things to become big things. It's not even within the body of Christ. It's within homes and families. Families are no longer united. Relationships are no longer united. And look at the blessing of being united. Verse 1, how good and pleasant it is in unity. When there is unity and peace in your home, my goodness. Goodness, what a blessing that is. If there's not peace and unity in your home, you don't even want to step foot in that place. It is awful. I remember at a place where I used to work years ago, there was these guys that would get off work around 4 o'clock. They would go to the bar and spend as much time as they possibly could at the bar. Finally get home maybe around 9 because they just didn't want to be at home. There was no peace, there was no unity. Their life was go to work early, stay to work late, go to the bar afterwards, and spend as little time at home as they possibly could. People do the same thing. I hear people tell me all the time, why would I want to go to church? Every time I go to church, people are arguing and fighting over everything. There's division. I agree, that's why the Lord called us in verse 1, to have pleasant and unity. That should be our goal. Unity and peace in our houses and our churches and relationships with each other. And if that's the goal that the Lord wants, just remind yourself of this. The enemy will do whatever he can to create discord and tension and stress. He will use everything he can. So how do we battle this? Verse 2, it's like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard. The beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. Now in the Old Testament, oil is representative of the Holy Spirit. It's a neat little study if you ever want to study that out. And so when Aaron became high priest, they anointed him with oil, which represented the Holy Spirit being upon him, which is what we're talking about. So we want the same thing, the Holy Spirit being upon us. And we look at what the oil does here. It runs down off of his head, off of his beard, off of his garments. He's drenched in this thing. Now, we anoint people with oil out here a lot. That's a biblical thing to do, is to pray for them and anoint them with oil. This is how it typically goes. Richard usually takes the oil and he says something to the fact of, I, you know, I anoint you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then I usually pray over him or something like that. And we do a little bit of oil. He takes a little bit on his finger, maybe puts it on their head, or maybe a body part hurt that's hurting. Can you imagine if we did it like this? Somebody would come up and say, I want to be anointed with oil. Richard shows up with Five gallons. It says, just stand here. Next thing you know, you are drenched. Not a little drop on your head, drenched in oil. Look at the visual here in verse 2. Running down off the beard, off the garments, off the clothes. This guy doesn't just been anointed with oil. He is drenched in oil. That's what it means to have the Holy Spirit upon you. To be drenched. Now, most of the time as believers, like I said, we're okay with some Holy Spirit. That's kind of fun. Drenched? That's a whole other level I don't know if I'm ready for. You want to put a little Holy Spirit on my head? I'm cool with that. Running off me? See, that's why the world thinks we're crazy. Guys, we are crazy. To really, really go out into this world and to see it transformed for Jesus Christ, your homes, your families, where you work, your school, whatever, you have to be radically crazy. You really do. Because we understand what is happening in the world, and this world is dying right in front of us, and we're sitting here happy and content. That has to end very, very soon. We need to be radically transformed, and that means the oil needs to be dripping down off you. And if that visual doesn't get you, verse 3, it's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing life forevermore. The dew... You remember what it's like on a really wet, dewy day. You walk outside, you take five steps, and your pants are soaked from your knees down. Next thing you know, you walk a little bit longer. You have dew all over the place. It's splashing up on you, etc. That's what it's supposed to be like. You can't walk through a dewy grass and stay dry. You can't know Jesus and not be transformed. You, You can't say, I want all of you, God, but just give me a little Holy Spirit. It doesn't work. See, we start thinking, well, if you, if you have the Holy Spirit upon you, well, it's just weird. Well, it is weird according to the world standards. According to the Bible, it's normal. It's just the thing is, what is your definition of normal? If your definition of normal is what the world thinks, then we're crazy. If my definition of normal is Acts, well, then I think the world's crazy. Because I read in Acts chapter 8 here, People got saved. Verse 7 unclean spirits were were cast out. People that were possessed were clean. People that were paralyzed are now healed. I see people getting saved. If I think that's normal, then I look at the world and I think the world's weird. But the world looks at me and thinks that we're weird. You got to choose. You really have to choose. And what you see here in the book of Acts, verses 14 through 17, is the Holy Spirit plays such a key role in everything. The Holy Spirit not just being in you. The Holy Spirit not being with you. But the Holy Spirit being upon you. And that impacts your church, your life, your family. And you grow in the Lord. You're not stagnant. Boy, that's what we desire. That's what we need. That's what we want. And that's what happened to the Samaritans The Holy Spirit came upon them, and they could never be the same. Boy, that's what we desire. What happens with Simon, though? Verse 18. When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Oh, boy. Now, here's Simon again. Now, this discussion on Simon becomes quite a debate. I remember when I first got saved years ago, I was at a Bible study one time, and I remember watching two people argue, argue whether Simon was saved or not. And the one that thought Simon was saved went back to verse 13 and said, well, it says he believed... Just, and That's the same word for believe as everybody else. He was baptized. He continued. Verse 13, he continued with Philip. And then people come back and say, well, he wasn't saved. Because look at verses 19 and 20. He's trying to buy the Holy Spirit. Peter says in verse 20, your money perish with you. What he says in verse 20, your money perish with you. That basically is saying you and your money are going to hell. It's going to be perished. And verse 21, you have neither part nor portion with us. Your heart's not right in the sight of God. you got to repent. You're poisoned by bitterness. Simon's great response in verse 24 is not to repent, but says, Hey, pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. Simon's heart's not saying, You're right. I should really seek forgiveness. Simon's heart is, Oh, you make a good point. Can you pray to God that I can be forgiven? So we could sit here and debate whether Simon was saved or not. So that's not the point. The point is looking at Simon and his walk and his relationship supposedly, with the Lord. And what was he doing? Well, look right here. Verses 18 and 19. He saw that the Holy Spirit and the power that it was, and he wanted it so bad he said, I'm going to buy this. Now remember, Simon is Simon the sorcerer. The magic trick guy. That's what he did. And so he made his living off of all these new things. And guess what happened? Simon saw a trick he has never seen before. He saw the power of the Holy Spirit. Did he see demons cast out? Did he see the paralyzed healed? Did he see peace speaking in tongues? I don't know what he saw. He saw that and said, that is the best trick I've ever seen. I see him pulling Peter and John aside and saying, hey guys, great trick. Respect it. Love it. Fellow magician here. Hey, how much for it? See, what he wanted, he wanted all the benefits of knowing the Lord without a relationship of knowing the Lord. People do the same thing still today. They want peace in this world, but they want peace separate from knowing Jesus Christ. That's not possible. They want wisdom on how to make decisions in life, but they want wisdom separate from seeking the Lord's wisdom. It does not work. I don't know how many times it happens. Somebody will call me or contact me or come into my office, and they want to talk, and their life is falling apart, and they desire calmness and peace and unity in their lives and their marriages and their families. So we start talking, and I say, Hey, how are you doing spiritually? Well, you know, I'm not really strong Scripture. I'm not really walking with the Lord, I'm not saved, or I know I could be doing better. And really what they want is peace and wisdom and calmness in their life without putting any effort into their walk in relationship with the Lord. It doesn't work that way. You want your marriage to be blessed, then seek the Lord to be the foundation of your marriage. You want your kids to grow up and be on fire for the Lord, then ingrain into them what it means to be on fire for the Lord. You want your life to be a walking testimony of Jesus Christ, then you put that effort into it. See, so often we want this simple, easy thing Lord, give me peace. And the Lord says, Sorry, I don't really know you that well. See, here's the thing God is a wonderful father. Wonderful father. He's a wonderful father to who? His children. His children. See, the Bible makes it clear there's two fathers. You either can be of your father the devil, the Bible says, or you can be of your heavenly father. And just like me, I'm not going to try to parent your kid. They're not my kids. The Lord will take care of his children. Will give them peace. Will give them peace in the storm. Will give them wisdom. Give them guidance. But children that are not his, when they cry out for peace, he says, I would love to give you peace. But you've got to be part of my family first. And that's where that relationship with Christ comes in. With Simon, he wanted all the benefits of being on fire for the Lord without being on fire for the Lord. I want to buy the trick. I want to buy it. Because it's fascinating. It looks neat. People still do that today. They hear about the Lord, they see what God can do, and they want to see the trick. So they'll come to church just to see it. Do you realize what it's like when you see a magic trick that you've never seen before? It just blows your mind. Don and I used to go down to Atlanta before we had kids. And we'd go to this place in Atlanta called Underground Atlanta, and it was this mall. And they had this magic store. And what would happen is they would do these um, you know, little magic shows there, just like five, ten people there, and they would do these amazing tricks. And every year we'd go and we'd watch them. And after they would do the trick, they would always stop and say, Hey, if you want to buy the trick, you can buy the trick. And so we'd always go watch the show, they do a few tricks, they try to sell you one, you kind of walk on. And every year we'd go do this. And it just absolutely fascinated me. So one year Dawn says, Oh, just go buy a trick. So we went and watched, and they did these things, and I said, I'm gonna do that. So I said, you know, that one right there. So you buy the trick, they take you back into this little room, and they show you how to do the trick. So you go back into this little room, the guy that just did the trick, he sets it up for you, does the trick, and after you watch it, you walk away completely and utterly deflated. And you think, I'm a complete idiot. I'm a complete idiot because there is nothing to it once you realize it. Once you realize how silly that trick is, you sit there thinking, how was I fooled by that? So what happens, we went back the next year and I thought I just bought a bad trick. So we go and watch again I'll, I'll try another one. I was even more utterly deflated, you know? And as you do them yourself, you're even disappointed as you're doing them thinking, this is so stupid. What happens sometimes spiritually is people see us, and I want to know the trick. They come into church, and what's the trick? Well, the trick is knowing Jesus Christ, and they walk away deflated. There's got to be more. I mean, there's got got to be more. You're, You're telling me peace and wisdom and unity in your family and salvation from sin and hell all comes from just knowing Jesus Christ. Yeah, Corinthians calls it the simplicity of Jesus There's got to be more. No, there is nothing more. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The simplicity of it. People come in all the time. They're going through a difficult time in life. They're looking for that quick fix, that quick heal, that quick peace, that quick calm. They come in, and maybe they get a small taste of it. But the long-term effects are only there if you have a real relationship with the Lord. And what happened with Simon as time went on... It sure looks like he did not have that real relationship with the Lord. He saw this trick and he said, I want that. Let me buy it. You can't buy it. Verse 20, Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this, your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Sad turn there for Simon. Simon. It really was. Because when you look at the words, once again, of Peter saying to him, your money perish with you. Because you thought you could buy this. You're not part of us. You're not part of our portion. You need to repent. You need to have forgiveness. And Simon's great response in verse 24 is, pray that the Lord would do that for me. Nothing personal there. It's not Simon hitting his knees saying, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. It's, hey, could you do this for me? No relationship. Look at the things, though, that they said about him. It all comes back to verse 21. Your heart is not right in the sight of God. That's a big statement. That word literally means your heart is not on the level. That's what that phrase literally means, not on the level. Can you imagine trying to build something, craft something out of the world, and you get your level out, and you put it on there, and you find out the board's not level, and you say, hey, good enough. And you continue on, and you keep building it. And then you wonder why at the end of the project, it's not right. You didn't start on the level. How many times spiritually do we do this? Okay, going to change. Don't like the way my life's going. Don't like the way the family's going. Don't like the way the marriage is going. Don't like the way everything is going. Time to change. But you're not on the level with the Lord. You're just going to kind of do it on your own. You're going to still end up with a shabby completion at the end. It has to be on the level heart right with God from the beginning. It has to be. Corinthians makes this clear. There's no other foundation than can be which laid, which is the foundation of Jesus Christ. That is the only foundation of anything. So, let's say your foundation's not right. Let's say you hear this right now and you say, okay, I'm not on the level. There's three responses to that. Response number one is Apathy. You know what? I got up an hour early today. It's almost a quarter after 11. He's got to be done here in about 10 minutes. Let's just get it over with. You hear it, but you just don't hear it. Apathy. Response number two, I'm not on the level. My heart's not right with God. Woe is me. I'm the worst person in the world. See, I don't get that. I run into people where they find out that they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing spiritually. And their great response is to dig a hole, jump in it, and cry. I don't get that. If you know you're not right, let's fix it. Let's move on. Let's do something. Why sit here and have a sob story about it? Let's do what it says in verse 22. Let's repent, but seek forgiveness. See, option three is what I call the challenge people. They stop here and they hear this and say, I'm not on the level. What do I need to do? I want to make this right. See, I'm a challenge type of guy. If someone comes up to me and and makes a comment to me or statement to me, and it, it hurts... My response generally is, why did they say that? What do I need to do to rise to that occasion? That, that's my personality. Every now and then out here at church, there will be a situation that pops up where I'll find out that someone doesn't really like me. Hard to believe. They don't want to talk to me. And, and But they're still kind of around. I will find them on Sunday and I'll sit down right beside them and I'll just hold their hand or something. You know what I mean? I, just, I will come right to it. If you look at your life, verse 21, you say, My heart's not right in the sight of God. I've allowed things to come in that shouldn't. I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing. I, I hope you rise to the occasion and the challenge and say, Okay, Lord, I want to be right with you. So what's the first step? The first step is verse 22. You repent. Repent. Repent means to do a 180. It means to change. How simple is this statement? Are you doing things you shouldn't be doing? Then stop. Are you not doing things that you should be doing? Then start. That's what the word repent means. Repent means I stop and I look at my life and I realize, okay, these actions that I'm doing are causing me harm. It's, as it says in verse 22, it's wickedness. It's pulling me away from the Lord. It's hurting my family, hurting unity in my family. It's hurting my walk in witness. So you know what? I'm going to stop. Okay, I see these things I should be doing now and I'm not. So these are things that are going to help me in my walk, my relationship, my family, my witness, my marriage, my kids, whatever it is. Guess what I'm going to start doing? I'm going to start. That's that's all it means. One of the most simple terms in the Bible of repent, and we get hung up on it. Start doing the things you should. Stop doing the things you shouldn't. Repent. Seek the Lord, verse 22, pray God, and he'll forgive you. Isn't that a beautiful thing? He will forgive you. You can start with a clean slate immediately. Just like that. That's the beauty of the Lord. And guess what? Once God forgives you, forgive yourself. I run into too many people that have tasted the forgiveness of God, but they can't move past themselves over what they've said and done. If God can forgive you, then you can forgive yourself. If you choose not to, verse 23, you will be poisoned by bitterness. You will allow that bitterness to come into your life. Other translations say you will be full of bitterness. It will poison you and it will spread to all of your loved ones. Turn, if you will, with me to Ephesians 4. Two verses here on this as we get ready to close up. Ephesians 4. Bitterness. Oh, it's an awful thing. I've seen believers that at one time were such a warm heart for the Lord, have something happen to them, somebody did something to them, I don't know, fill in the blank, to allow bitterness to overcome them, and it has them. And here's the thing about being poisoned by bitterness. It does not just affect you. It will affect everybody around you. It truly will. I know at home, if I come home and and I, I have a bad day, and I'm allowing bitterness or frustration get the best of me, it will spread to dawn, it will spread to the kids, it will spread to the chickens and the goats, it will just spread to everybody. That's what happens with bitterness. It's a poison that spreads. Look at this. Ephesians 4, verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. How simple is that? Verse 29. Let your words be godly. Here's here's the simple phrase. Your words are either godly or ungodly. Godly words edify, build up, encourage, support, help. Ungodly words tear down, spread bitterness. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you as a born-again believer. So therefore, when you do things that are ungodly, you break God's heart. You grieve Him. I mean, as a parent, if you're a parent in here this morning, and, and when your kids argue and fight, and you see lack of unity in your own house and your kids, that hurts. It really hurts. So the Lord is grieved when we as believers don't act like believers. Verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away with you with all malice. See, right there's that bitterness. Bitterness. Bitterness leads to wrath. It leads to anger. It leads to clamor and evil speaking and malice. And all of a sudden you see yourself saying things and doing things that you're just ashamed of. Because this bitterness is spread and it becomes this battle of who's right and who's wrong. And this bitterness is a poison that affects all of your relationships. What are we supposed to do? Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You have been wronged, you have been hurt, you forgive them. That's what it means. You be tenderhearted, you're forgiving, you're kind. I mean, look at verses 31 and 32. What describes you? Not the public you. What describes you, your heart? Are, is there bitterness? Do you find yourself having wrath and anger and, and this... Clamor, which is really just loud fighting and evil speaking and malice? Or is there kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness? That's the goal. That bitterness. Bitterness is an awful thing. One more verse on bitterness and then we'll close up. Can you go with me to Hebrews 12, please? Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, we get both sides of it again one more time. Hebrews 12, look at verse 14. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's our goal. It's peace with everybody. Pull this all, all this whole message together. We talked about the Holy Spirit coming upon the Samaritans, about being upon them. Then we went to Psalms and we talked about how Aaron was representative of that Holy Spirit being upon him, drenched. And one of the results of the Holy Spirit being upon is unity peace and unity at home, at work. That, what a beautiful blessing that is. See, that's what we want. Verse 14 pursue peace and holiness because that's what we do as Christians. Well, the flip side was Simon who wanted to buy God, which was revealing his heart of bitterness, his heart of anger there. And so what's the second part of this verse 15? Looking carefully, Hebrews 12 verse 15, Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Seek if I'm not seeking, verse 14, holiness and peace in the Lord... Verse 15, bitterness is getting me. It springs up. And look at that last phrase of verse 15. Many become defiled. Some of your translations may say the word corruption. It will affect everybody around you. It truly will. And you have seen that, I'm sure, personally. Where one bitter person at work affects the whole line. One bitter person in your family brings down the whole family. One bitter person in a Bible study can infect the whole Bible study. What do we do with bitter people? What's God's response? Well, God's response is verse 14. Pursue peace with them, pursue holiness with them. Oh, boy. Don't you wish that verse wasn't in there? I mean, don't you wish God would said, if they're bitter, kick them out? I mean, let the bitter people start their own church, the Church of Bitterness. But it, it, God says, pursue peace. You know how difficult it is to pursue peace with someone who's bitter. You know how difficult it is to pursue holiness with someone who's bitter. It's hard to do. Problem is, verse 15, that bitterness is a poison that will defile many of us. And we've got to be careful about that. What's the best way to battle it? Well, if the Holy Spirit's living with you, the Holy Spirit's living in you, and the Holy Spirit's upon you, only thing you care about are the things of the Lord. And all of a sudden, all those little hurts and wrongs and times that you've been shorted by somebody, ah, let's just seek the Lord. Let's pursue peace. Let's get back to this idea of being radically different than the world. So that way they may see Jesus Christ living in us. Let's reach a point where we stop and say, you know what, I don't care what people think anymore. They think I'm crazy, that's fine, I'm crazy. I want to be radically different for Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That's what we want to do, and that is our intentions in all that we do and all that we say. Mark, if you can come forward here for the final song.